Welcome to Debrief by MedPro Group, an inside look at some of the 500,000 plus medical malpractice claims handled by our company. In this podcast, our claims experts share the interesting, unique, and often intriguing elements of cases they have handled. Ready? Let's begin. Welcome listeners to this episode of Debrief. This week we have with us Molly Hoffman. Molly, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Molly, before we get started, we like to take a few minutes to get to know our guests. So, if you could just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about your professional background, that'd be great. Sure. You know, I live in Denver, Colorado. Uh, After I got out of law school, I started working at a small firm doing med mal defense work. Um, My father is an internal medicine doctor. My mom was a nurse. So, I was kind of destined for this field. I worked at that firm for about 10 years and then decided to go in-house as claims counsel for a local health system. After about a couple of years there, I decided to try my hand at MedPro. You know, I was more interested in focusing solely on claims, whereas when you're working internally at a healthcare system, you do a lot of quality and risk management work as well. And even though I think as a consultant at MedPro, I do a little bit of that work here, really my sole focus is on the claims work. Um, And so I was just excited about that opportunity. Right now, I'm a claims consultant in the Western region. You know, and as far as my background, I think one benefit to my experience is that as working as defense counsel, you know, I understand what it's like to be on the front line, arguing with plaintiff attorneys, and then going in-house to a healthcare system. You know, I think I certainly get the nuances of the expectations and concerns that our insureds have, just as far as their practice, reputation, you know, business decisions and those kinds of things. And I think it's just made me a really well-rounded consultant at MedPro. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a a great background across multiple disciplines that can lend to uh, serving the insureds really, really well and understanding all of the different aspects from all the different parties that are involved in these cases. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, Molly. So I read through the case that you have for us today, and it, it definitely has some interesting aspects. So if you wouldn't mind, let's start with just a real good high-level 10,000-foot overview of this case. Sure. You know, we had this particular plaintiff who was in the healthcare field. You know, he'd undergone a gastric sleeve procedure, and he did well for about a month post-op. But after about that initial month, you know, he started experiencing some dizziness, vomiting, abdominal pain. You know, and because he was in the healthcare field, he was consulting with some of his colleagues, you know, just as far as potential treatment. So he was trying some Zofran, he was trying some IV fluids here and there, uh, but ultimately the symptoms really didn't go away. So he was seen in the emergency room a couple of times for these same symptoms. You know, they were treating him for GERD and other similar issues. But after about 16 days of vertigo with really no relief, uh, he was seen in the emergency room and they decided to admit him. Um, After about four or five days, he started to show a lot of mental decline and confusion, and he was admitted to the ICU. After being admitted to the ICU, a dietician suggested that he be tested for B1 and B12 levels, just in case there was some type of vitamin deficiency. And ultimately, they did come back showing deficient, and he was diagnosed with Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is a brain disorder caused by the lack of vitamin B1. Uh, The hospitalist prescribed some thiamine, which greatly improved his mental issues. And after that, you know, because of the vitamin deficiency, he did show a lot of cognitive decline. So he ultimately went to a rehab facility and stayed for a while and then was discharged to home. 
Okay, so the interesting thing about this one for me is the fact that this individual was in the healthcare field and it sounds like he was consulting with colleagues and so forth. So how did that aspect play out in the handling of the case, this fact that this individual was in the healthcare field and was interacting with colleagues for part of his treatment? Right. So, you know, I think in this situation, it makes it a little bit trickier simply because these are colleagues and friends of this particular plaintiff who are talking about these symptoms. So when it's all happening, you know, I think everybody is probably being really frank and trying to help him feel better. However, as you move into litigation, and obviously what these people are saying at a deposition is going to have ramifications later, they're putting a slightly different spin on their testimony as far as the measures that they were talking to this plaintiff about, the things they were recommending he try, because they wanted to help his case further. And if they were showing, you know, that they were involved too much initially on, I think it takes away from his claim against the later providers. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So how did the claim come about? We we obviously have heard his condition and, and what happened with him physically, but how did the claim actually come about and result? You know, ultimately, I think he saw some subsequent providers further down the timeline who indicated to him that the Wernicke should have been diagnosed sooner, which I think prompted him to take a second look at all of his records and all of the providers that he saw. Okay. So ultimately, he just sued the hospital, the emergency room providers, the hospitalists involved, and his gastric surgeon who had done the initial repair about a month before, you know, alleging that all of them should have been tipped off sooner to this vitamin deficiency and that they should have been diagnosing him a lot faster. Okay. So what was the approach to defending against those allegations that the Warnickeys should have been diagnosed sooner? You know, a big point of contention in this case was whether the plaintiff was upfront about the gastric sleeve procedure with all of these providers who saw him during the ED admission as well as after he was admitted to the hospital. Our MedPro insureds were adamant that they were never notified that he just had a gastric sleeve procedure a month before, much less that he had lost about 30 pounds in the last 30 days. Uh, Subsequent providers also indicated that he had not told them. And I think there probably is an issue at play there having to do with he doesn't want to tell everyone that he'd undergone a gastric sleeve procedure because it potentially is a small community and his coworkers, colleagues, and friends might not have been aware of his condition. Um, So I think that certainly played into the development of this case. I can definitely see how not wanting to share those things could cause treatment to not be provided as accurately as possible because the providers didn't have all of the facts at hand regarding the plaintiff's condition. So I know a lot of times defense counsel will bring in experts as well, the plaintiffs, to make the case for what they think damages should be or uh, whether we believe the standard of care was met. So can you describe how the experts in this case impacted the progression of the case and the defense? Sure. You know, in all medical malpractice cases, both sides retain experts in specialties that are heavily involved in this case. You know, topic areas specific to this are going to be emergency medicine, bariatric surgery, neurology, radiology, life expectancy, neuropsych, physical medicine rehab, probably a life care planner as well as an economist, just looking at the overall standard of care, causation, and damages pictures. I think because this particular plaintiff was in the healthcare field, 
it also adds an extra layer of additional witnesses who are going to be critical of the defendant provider simply because they are colleagues of his who were, you know, talking to him as his care progressed, and they're obviously going to develop certain opinions. So not only are we dealing with specifically retained experts that we're essentially paying for, but then against us, not only do plaintiffs also have these retained experts, but they also have these colleagues, friends, and fact witnesses who are also being critical of the defendant providers. Um, so it just adds an extra layer of, I think, makes it more complicated as far as experts. And to that extent, you know, a jury is going to be expected to kind of wade through all of that, which I think makes it really hard to decipher. Okay. And I'm presuming that with all of these experts involved, that also plays into the costs associated with defending this case and, and ultimate settlement and so forth. Am I correct in that assumption? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this is a pretty medically complicated case, simply because you are looking at from inception when he's seen in the emergency department throughout his stay on the regular med surge unit and then moving into the ICU and bariatric surgery and obviously suffering this type of brain injury. You know, probably it would categorize these are typically one of our more catastrophic injury cases just because brain injuries tend to be expensive. And in line with that is the number of experts that you have to retain as far as the different specialties involved, which we kind of listed before. Um, so that certainly plays into the expense of litigation. Okay. So some of the experts that were brought in as I was reading through the case were some life care plan experts. Can you speak to some of the findings that the plaintiff's life care experts brought to the table as opposed to our rebuttals of those findings? You know, typically, as in most cases, plaintiff experts specific to life expectancy are going to say that the plaintiff is going to live a lot longer. And a natural defense position, I think, just based on evaluation, is that the plaintiff is actually not going to live as long as plaintiff's experts like to say. You know, specific to this plaintiff, he was overall doing pretty well cognitively. He just had a lot of physical limitations as far as activities of daily living. You know, he was able to take care of all of his own ADLs having to do with hygiene, so he's able to bathe and dress himself, but he did need assistance a couple of hours a day as far as getting meals together, you know, cleaning, maybe transportation to some appointments. Um, so I think overall, you know, there is a discrepancy as far as both sides and what their life expecting the experts are willing to say. You know, talking about life care experts, an example of a discrepancy in this area is that plaintiff's experts were saying that this plaintiff needed 24 hours a day nursing care, which is a very high expense, which typically we see in these life care plans. Whereas the defense experts, you know, were able to evaluate this plaintiff, but estimated that he only needed about five hours of just assistive care every day. It certainly did not require a registered nurse to be taking care of him because, as I said before, it has to do with things like helping him get meals together cleaning his house, transporting him to medical appointments and those kinds of things. Tell me, how did this case ultimately resolve? Did we take it to trial? Did we mediate? Uh, where did we go to get to the finish line? Right. So in this case, you know, uh, there are a lot of defendants. Uh, so at times that can make a mediation or resolution, I think, a lot trickier because sometimes not all those defendants are going to be on the same page. So my understanding is this case went to a first mediation, whereas one of the co-defendants was really unwilling to settle. So we went through a little bit more discovery, and we ultimately scheduled a second mediation. And at that mediation, all of the parties came with the decision to really resolve this claim at that point. So we were all able to settle the claim with the plaintiff. Okay, great. 
You said that there was multiple defendants involved. So was the plaintiff looking for a one big settlement from everybody or was it parceled out uh, according to each defendant? How, how did that get determined without too much detail? Yeah. <laughs> when you go into a mediation with a plaintiff, you don't always know what you're going to get with a multiple defendant situation. Uh, I think sometimes plaintiffs come in and they have just a global number and they just want this amount from everybody at the table and they don't care who pays what. Uh, Other times, you know, they come to the mediation and they have a definitive number for each defendant at the table and set forth that number and then negotiate directly with each defendant. You know, specific to this one, I think all of the defendants came with a certain amount and were willing to resolve the case. And when you put it all together the plaintiff is willing to take it. Okay. Very, very good. And as you said, this this was a really complex case medically. There were a lot of different providers involved. Were there any providers that were found not to be liable and other providers that were found to be liable? So sure. You know, and when a patient is admitted to the emergency room and then later admitted to a hospital floor, they're typically seen by a lot of different providers, you know, depending on shift change and what's going on at the hospital. Specific to this, I believe the patient was seen by two different ED providers. You know, one of them is a lot more involved than the other, just based on the timing that he spends with the patient. And same with the hospitalist team. You know, I think there were several hospitalists who saw this patient, but the one who really saw him the most consistently in those four days before he was diagnosed, you know, I think that person is going to carry more exposure. Okay. That that makes a whole lot of sense. When it was all said and done, it sounds like there was... um, an award given to the plaintiff. Uh, how how did the defendants, the MedPro insureds, feel about uh, MedPro's handling of the case and, and ultimately how we were able to uh, adjudicate the claim? Sure. So I think medical malpractice cases, you know, they're very personal to our insureds mm-hmm. and to the providers. Um, it's certainly something that weighs on them as soon as they get the complaint and they have to be involved, they have to be deposed. You know, and as you get closer to a trial date, you're thinking about whether you have to sit at trial every day for three weeks, which takes you away from your practice, your patients, potentially your family, if it's not going to be close to home. So based on all of those factors, I think that weigh heavily against our insurance, obviously we take their input as far as whether we're going to mediate and resolve the case or take the case to trial. And in this instance, I think all of our insurance were really relieved that we were able to resolve the case amicably with the plaintiff and that they were not going to be required to step away from their everyday lives for three weeks. Okay. So you say three weeks. How long did this claim process take in total? You know, that's a good question, Travis. I would say this case lasted about five years. Wow. From the time when it came in to when we were able to resolve it. You know, that's a really interesting point that the case itself lasted for five years but the specific insureds would potentially have to be away from their practice, away from their families for three weeks. So that's another dynamic that we try to outline in this podcast for listeners, the amount of time that these cases take. Because yes, you've potentially got three weeks where you're going to have to be out of the office, away from your patients, away from your family to deal with this case. But you've got five years where this case is hanging over your head, where you don't know ultimately what your level of responsibility may or may not be. So being able to address this in a way that 
helps put the insurance at ease is very, very important. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Travis. You know, I think a big part of being a claim consultant MedPro is providing that support to our insureds when they get this kind of paperwork. Uh, I've certainly had a lot of late night phone calls with insureds who had just been served with a process server and they were pretty upset about it and questioning whether they could continue on with their careers. But in the end, you know, this is why people have insurance and this is why I have a job, why lawyers have jobs, because we are out there trying to support these insureds going through these difficult situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I love about being in the insurance industry myself is the ability to help protect people's ability to continue doing the things that they love to do, serving the communities that they serve. And it's just, it's just a great feeling. So any other takeaways that you have for us on this case? You know, I think this case is a good example of, as we've said multiple times, a medically complicated case with a lot of moving parts and a lot of different players. So I think to the extent that we can all really stay amicable and work together, I think in the end, that's how we're going to get through all these kinds of cases. That's a great, great point. Everybody having level heads and being willing to talk through situations respectfully and amicably, I think is great advice for a lot of different situations in life. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, Molly, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. Thanks so much, Travis. And listeners, please join us again in a couple of weeks for our next episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Debrief. I've been your host, Travis Langford. If you have enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. For more information about MedPro, including healthcare liability insurance quotes and risk management resources, please visit us at medpro.com. A special thank you to the MedPro Group claims, legal, and marketing teams for researching, screening, and reviewing episode content and providing marketing collateral and support for this podcast. Technical direction, music, pre- and post-production by Travis Langford. This podcast does not constitute legal or medical advice and should not be construed as rules for establishing a standard of care. Because the facts applicable to your situation may vary, or the laws applicable in your jurisdiction may differ, please contact your attorney or other professional advisors if you have any questions related to your legal or medical obligations, rights, state or federal laws, contract interpretation, or other legal questions. MedPro Group is the marketing name used to refer to the insurance operations of the Medical Protective Company, Princeton Insurance Company, Plyco Inc., and MedPro RRG Risk Retention Group. All insurance products are underwritten and administered by these and other Berkshire Hathaway affiliates, including National Fire and Marine Insurance Company. Product availability is based upon business and or regulatory approval and or may differ among companies. Copyright 2023, MedPro Group Inc., all rights reserved.